Welcome. Welcome to the latest instalment of our safety leadership series for 2023. As many of you know, my name is Nerida Jessup. I'm a partner in our employment, industrial relations and safety practice here in Sydney. Um, I will shortly introduce our panellists uh, who are joining me today. But I just wanted to start by acknowledging uh, the traditional owners of the land that we meet on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects uh, to elders past and present. I will let you know if you've got any questions, please just pop them into the chat. Those, those questions will be monitored and we will make time at the end to go through any of those questions. Um, if we don't get to your questions, just reach out to us, uh, send us an email and we'd be happy to pick up these issues uh, down the track. I just, um, the opportunity today is really to have a discussion uh, with two of my partners, uh, Lauren and Mel, uh, both who work heavily in the ESG advisory uh, space. Um, by way of a quick introduction, Lauren is a partner in our head office advisory and ESG team based in Sydney, and she has over 15 years experience providing advice to corporate head offices on public company governance, including legal and regulatory requirements, market practice and emerging trends. Um, I'm also really pleased to be joined today by uh, my partner, Melanie Debenham. She's joining us today from our Perth office. Mel leads the environment planning and communications team in WA and has over 15 years experience advising clients um, on access and project approvals, environment and planning regulation, native title, cultural heritage and associated regulation. So thanks Lauren and Mel and thanks for your patience. It's great to be with you today. Um, I just, <laughs> I, I think the opportunity today is something that we've seen in the safety space. We've seen a real shift in the way that uh, boards and directors are approaching reporting on work health and safety and, and actually probably one of the, the starkest trends that we've seen lately is the way that, that uh, regulatory authorities, so our safety regulators, are actually investigating officers, including directors of companies, following serious safety incidents. So we've had in the safety space, just for context, we've had the personal positive proactive uh, due diligence obligation sitting in our WHS laws for over a decade now. And it's been seen as a real success of the mode of WHS regulation in Australia. It has been seen as really contributing to bringing discussions in relation to safety right to the forefront of um, directors' minds and, and into the boardrooms of Australia. So I think the story of the, the due diligence obligation is, you know, it's generally a positive one, but at the same time, and particularly over the last few years, we've seen um, a real increase in focus, I think, the, the expectation from the community, from policy and lawmakers, is that individuals will be held to account for uh, uh, corporate conduct. And we've, we've certainly seen that translated in the way that, that regulators are investigating officers following serious safety incidents. Um, so while we've seen the introduction of the due diligence obligation has created a real sophistication, a real comfort for directors in discussing safety in the boardroom and, and understanding the reporting before them. I think over the last few years, there's been some unease as to whether there is, in having these discussions and receiving this reporting, is there some level of um, personal exposure for directors and officers? Um, and, and how do you strike that balance between really wanting to contribute to better safety outcomes, contribute to drive better safety performance, but make sure uh, that, that you are um, provided with the right information, quality information, um, so that if you are faced with an investigation, you, you really have a clear picture of what it is that you're doing to meet your personal obligations and, and you're able to explain that to a regulator. And, I think that this is kind of a timely discussion for us in the safety team here. We've just submitted a, a section 155 notice, which was about 160 questions directed very specifically to five individual named directors 
of, of one of our clients asking for really granular detail about what WHS qualifications they had, what type of activities, uh, what CPD points they had in relation to safety, what KPIs they had in relation to safety and whether they were meeting them. And this type of quite targeted focused investigation is definitely a trend in our space. So I, I think it's a real opportunity just to swap notes about the kind of shifts we've seen in, in board reporting um, and whether you've seen this in your space as well. So uh, Lauren, if I can start with you, I think one of the, the shifts that we've seen is in the safety space, there's definitely been an improvement in the quality of information that's uh, given to boards. And this, from my perspective, is not about giving them more material and more information. You know, it, it's not about uh, making those packs thicker. And I'm not sure that there's kind of a single answer to, to how reporting is best shaped up for each board. Um, but I think there's definitely acknowledgement that boards are responsible for pulling the right information from management and that they have control over the information before them. So I don't know if there has been a moment where some of these uh, issues of, of individual liability and compliance have meant that directors have actually had too much information before them or they're kind of faced with thousand page packs uh, that isn't necessarily helpful. But Lauren, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on how directors are getting this balance right, striking this balance between getting the right information but not being swamped in, in paperwork. Yeah, it's a really tricky issue. And I think all boards are grappling with it in their different ways. I think there's a few things to consider. And I actually, before I even start with board papers, and I'll come to that, I actually think it starts with setting the agenda. And for example, thinking about what goes on the agenda. So, you know, in relation to each item, should this actually be going up to the board? Would it be more appropriate for it to go to a committee? Would it be more appropriate to actually just stay at the management level and the board get a verbal update on it? Um, is the agenda striking the right balance between kind of risk and compliance updates and strategy and more operational things? Uh, what's the right order of the agenda even? Because I know sometimes if you start with kind of the risk stuff, then you run out of time to deal with strategy. So. Do you have enough board meetings every year? You know, there's a lot of different questions in kind of the setup stage that need to be considered. Um, and that will inform what information comes up to the board. Um, there's not necessarily a right answer to any of those questions, but your chair will no doubt have a view. So it's always worth engaging with your boards to think about, you know, either as part of your annual performance evaluation or at any point during the year, you know, have we got the agenda right over the year and are the right issues coming up to the board? Should some things that are currently coming up no longer come up? Um, perhaps you were doing a deep dive on an issue and you're kind of happy with where it is now, so maybe updates on that don't need to be as frequent. And so really kind of setting the structure up correctly is a really good starting point. Um, but then board papers themselves, they're also a real focus and they have been for quite a long time. Um, the key is that board papers need to be clear and they need to be concise. Um, as Nerida mentioned, yeah, you're right. You know, it's the directors who are responsible for managing the level and timeliness of information that comes up to them. So if they are receiving too much information, they really do need to push back and say, you know, we can't review a thousand pages in two days. That's unrealistic. We either need more time, we need less detail. So the directors, it's their obligation to push back. And on the flip side, if directors don't have all the relevant information they need to consider and vote on a matter, they need to ask for it. It's not good enough to say, we just didn't have that information. If you don't think you have something, um, it would be a breach of your duty to vote on a matter until you have that information. Um, a really good starting point, and most companies have this, but is to have a board paper template. And sometimes you've had a template for you know, five, 10 years, so it's worth kind of thinking about, you know, is this still fit for purpose? Is this still working for our directors? And there's not necessarily a one size fits all that would work for every company, um, but it's worth chatting to your directors to see whether they're happy with the kind of format and structure of the papers and that level of information that's coming up to them. We spoke to a few directors, well, we speak to directors all the time, but a number of years ago, specifically on board papers, 
to get some feedback. And I'll just read out some of their comments because well, they're entertaining and they're helpful. Um, one of them said, you know, it's important for the board paper to cut to the punchline. It's not a murder mystery. Um, the purpose of the paper should be clear upfront. And I think that's really important. That elevator pitch needs to be very clear. Another director said, mm -hmm. just tell me the essentials. And when we unpack that, you know, those are essentially, you know, what is the issue? What does this mean for the business? What are the risks? What are the options or solutions available? What's management's recommendation? And why is that the best choice? And if you're covering those points in a board paper, you've got a pretty good board paper. Um, and then there's the really obvious things, you know, using plain English, not having long paragraphs, avoiding saying the same thing twice. You know, I think a lot of um, boards are now moving to PowerPoint instead of words. We're thinking about, you know, would tables or visual um, elements help in presenting this information? Um, it's important when, if you are writing a board paper to think about your audience. So if, for example, if you're writing for non-executive directors, they are not in your business. So maybe they don't understand all the acronyms or they might not want that same level of information that management want. Uh, in terms of attachments, we get asked this all the time, you know, should we have attachments? How long should they be? I think if you can put information into an attachment, my question would be, does it need to be included in the board paper at all? Um, but if it is, you know, that's fine. You can have an attachment, but it's really important not to bury important information in those attachments because a director mm -hmm. will be expected to have read all of the board papers and they'll be put on notice um, of the issue and be expected to kind of make it proper inquiries if that information is before them. And I think the last thing, or actually maybe the second last thing I'll say is, you know, I, I guess I this is with my lawyer hat on, but um, you know, these board papers are often looked at in regulators um, and sometimes even in the courts. So it's important to kind of keep that in mind that these board papers will form part of a document trail. Um, and as I said, getting feedback from the directors, that's really key. They know what they need and they'll help you find that right balance. Yep. Um, I love that. I, I, I think it's really important, that concept of looking not just at your board papers, but actually what is the flow of information, looking at this as part of a kind of a holistic governance structure. But just picking up on that that issue of burying of information, I think that that was one of the issues that particularly um, when when boards were looking at how best to respond to the respect at work findings and you know the the sexual harassment, the stop sexual harassment obligations, where board governance and and leadership were seen as really key issues here. I think that some of the through lines of the experiences that that corporate Australia had had. Uh, when some of the more egregious examples of, of sexual harassment came out and there had been inadequate management responses that, that the boards were kind of scratching their head at, at how those decisions could be be made, you know, within, within a company that they had responsibility for. And I think that there was a real balance to be struck here with not wanting to step in the shoes of management, you know, decisions in relation to investigating complaints of sexual harassment, for example, workplace conduct, um, employment consequences, they're nuanced and they're difficult. And uh, I guess directors didn't want to feel like they were in a position where there was information buried in there and and that they would then be um, criticised for having information they didn't respond to. But they wanted to make sure that there was a, a level of, you know, appropriate and active oversight. And I think some boards have come up with, you know, the if not, why not question that, that some are using, which is if there is a substantiated um, complaint of sexual harassment in the organisation and there is not a termination of employment, then management have to come and explain to the directors why not. Um, and I think that some of the, that is about just making sure the information before you is crisp, using that kind of governance role effectively without kind of opening yourself up to stand in the shoes of management. I just, I wanted to get your thoughts on that too, how to kind of get that balance right. Yeah, um, it's tricky, right? And I think because the media and regulators and basically all stakeholders, shareholders are putting more and more pressure on non-executive directors, they feel they need to take a bigger role. Um, mm. I think it's generally understood that, you know, the tone is set from the top and the board plays a really important role in that. 
uh, you know, the board will often approve the code of conduct, the board will approve the values of the business. Um, I, I act for a lot of listed companies and it's now an expectation for listed company boards to receive updates on any material breaches of a code of conduct and any material incidents reported under a whistleblowing policy. And the reason for that is these issues are often indicative of issues within the culture of the organisation. So the board wants that information to be escalated to them as a bit of a pulse check so they can see what's going on and get that understanding. Having said that, directors aren't managing the business on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but I think everyone could understand why, you know, they really need to have that understanding of um, the culture within the business, particularly where it can impact or where an issue can impact on the reputation of the company and therefore, honestly, on the reputation of the directors themselves. Um, in my experience, you know, chairman and CEO do meet really quite regularly, often kind of once a week, um, again, in the listed space, that would be pretty normal. And that regular communication, I think, is really helpful just to put the chair on notice of various issues that are going on within the business in a really informal way. And then the chair mm. can look to say, oh, you know, that issue really needs to come up to the board um, or to a certain committee. And that is particularly the case on these kind of cultural um, sexual harassment type of issues, especially if senior management are involved. Um, to the extent that these types of issues aren't flagged to the board, you know, and the board that finds out later, is that real risk from a director perspective of them saying, well, we can't trust management. If you had this, hid this from us, what else are you hiding? And so, you know, keeping that transparency up really helps the board build trust in the management team. And you'll very quickly get a sense from your board and your chair as to what things they're expecting to come up and what issues they are not. But if in doubt, I would be having that discussion with the chairman just saying, you know, this is going on as an FYI, and at least then the chairman's been brought in the loop, especially if it then hits the press three weeks later, you know, that at least, you know, if you're protecting the management and management's all like, we did tell you, you know, you were put on notice of this. So I do think that transparency is really helpful. Um, but yeah, I think directors are looking to play a bigger, bigger role. Um, they are looking to challenge management more within the board meetings. There's, you know, regulators are expecting directors to do that. Um, and, you know, that's not necessarily in an aggressive way, but I think, you know, you will expect to see that testing and, of, of management and more questions just as a matter of norm. Great. Uh, Mel, if I can turn to you, I know you and I have had discussions about, I guess, the trends in the environmental space, perhaps following in the, the trend that we've seen in the safety space for you know, a decade or so. Um, so we've seen a real evolution, as I mentioned, in safety reporting and how boards are discussing safety issues. There's a real sophistication around understanding the risks in the business and how, you know, how to look for and discuss emerging trends and issues. Are you seeing similar uh, changes or similar evolution in the safety space? I'd be keen on your reflections. Absolutely. Um, and it's quite interesting because if you look at sort of the regulatory regime that sits around environment, um, it is pretty similar to safety and it's been that way for a long time. We've had really strong, um, relatively strong environmental laws in Australia since the 80s and 90s. Um, but for whatever reason, the E in, um, in EHS has always been the poor cousin to safety. Um, and that has really shifted, probably not in the last decade, but maybe in the past, Five, um, five or so years. Um, there's a heap of factors I think that are in play. Um, probably incidents, um, so really high profile incidents, both in Australia and internationally, have elevated the risk and the potential consequences um, of, of environmental um, occurrences to, to that board level. Um, we also have a much more engaged community um, and a broad range of stakeholders um, who are thinking about and vocal about environmental issues. Um, and obviously that can play out in a range of ways, including exercise of legal rights and judicial review and court actions, but also the noise um, around a particular part of the environment or a particular type of activity. Um, and, and that I think is also elevating these sort of considerations up to the board level. Um, if I look at what we're seeing from regulators and government, 
I mean, environment used to be an issue that you just didn't talk about in elections, right? Um, because it would sink you. Um, and the last federal election was a real change um, where Labor came in with strong commitments quite late in the piece, but they brought that to the electorate and that has formed part of their mandate for the first term of government. We've seen a real um, quick reform process um, um, taken on by the Commonwealth Government, not just in terms of climate, but environmental regulation more broadly. Um, and obviously when you're seeing that sort of shifting gears from government, those are the sorts of issues that need to be front and centre for the board because um, mm. they have that direct impact on business now, but also what's over the horizon. Um, so that, I think those are some of the reasons why we have seen an elevation in issues and there's just so much more um, compliance um, and investigation activity um, across all jurisdictions in Australia, um, Commonwealth, State and Territory. Um, so the risk associated with um, taking an approach to environment that's different to safety is different now it's just higher i don't think that's really tolerable um, and that's understood by directors and that's sort of pulling these issues back up to, to or up to the board level um, as well as you, you know similar to safety there's a role to be played by management right down to every employee within an organization particularly if you if you're an enterprise that has got a footprint be that a physical footprint or an emissions footprint um, We've heard a bit about sort of climate literacy being an important skill for directors. And I think as um, you know, the the ripple effect of um, environmental awareness sort of spreads out, we'll, I think we'll be talking more about environmental literacy, um, nature, um, an understanding of nature and the interaction of a business with nature, not just where you've got a footprint, but um, you know, maybe an extension of that idea of scope three up upstream, downstream impacts of your organisation on nature, those will all be things that directors will need to be skilled in and have to grapple with. That's, that's really interesting. And I, I think you flagged that there's been a, a change in, I guess the regulatory investigation side of things that you, you think is probably tracking what we've seen in the, the safety space. Are you getting requests for, uh, board papers, what, what directors have done to look at various issues, whether they've had SMEs, is that part of your regulatory investigation? We now expect that as a matter of course, um, but board papers, board activities, director activities will be looked at fairly closely. Is that is that something that you're seeing at all? Um, we're probably sort of at the tip of the iceberg um, in that regard. I think environmental regulators are getting a lot more sophisticated, um, probably learning from their colleagues in the safety space and, um, and elsewhere around the sort of things to be looking at beyond, um, you know, that the facts at hand, you know, the, the very high level um, reasons why an occurrence occurred. Um, it's, it's interesting because in the Eastern States, we have seen prosecutions um, initiated against directors and obviously preceding um, that tool, there would have been an investigation that was very focused on the conduct of directors, um, well, or, yeah, the personal conduct of directors um, in, in, the, in the occurrence and, and how that has influenced the conduct of the company. Um, in most environmental regulatory regimes, there are deeming provisions um, similar to safety um, that put directors and executive officers in the same shoes as the company. Um, and due diligence is generally um, a, a part of a defence. So mm. I, I think there's a lot to be learnt um, in discharging environmental risk and meeting your obligations from what you do in the safety space. And to the extent that organisations aren't already thinking um, along these lines, you know, our advice generally is that you just want to, you want these things to mirror one, one another. What you're doing in the safety space probably reflects best practice and it's something you should be doing in the environment space. And, you know, I hate to say it's probably what you need to do in the cultural heritage space as well. Um, and yeah. we'll be talking about modern <clears throat> slavery and other things the future in exactly the same way. So, you know, why not set up um, a, a dialogue between management 
and boards um, that is replicable across all of these areas of ESG that are you know growing exponentially in importance. Yeah I think that's right and I think you know leaving aside that there is there is a distinction between um, uh, the due diligence positive obligation in the safety space and the, the kind of deemed provisions that apply in your space um, the model is good you know and it is actually leaving aside uh, individual exposure you know there is an opportunity to contribute to these really important issues um, within a business and, and managing these kind of non-financial risks uh, but moving back to the the potential liability and Lauren I just I, I wanted to ask you this you, you know we know that that uh, due diligence and governance is not just receiving reporting it is actually engaging with that reporting it is asking questions of management so that while receiving reporting and, and ensuring that you're comfortable that you're getting the level of information that you need to exercise that active oversight is, is one part of it. The second part of it is, of course, not in those reports. Uh, and sometimes it's difficult for, for us when we're responding to these notices to, to explain what a director has done in the due diligence space because a lot of that is well, I've, I've read it, I've understood it, I've engaged with management, but there might not be a record of that. And, you know, there is some concern about the best way to keep records of this as well, because um, I'd like to get your thoughts on how to best capture that story. You know, what type of record keeping do you think will kind of mitigate that legal risk, but not create further problems down the track? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, well, I mean, board minutes at the end of the day are the kind of formal record of the proceedings of the board meeting and they can be really helpful. Um, from a court's perspective, the court will consider the minutes to be kind of evidence of what they say occurred unless there's anything to the contrary that suggests otherwise. Um, you know, and there's been some various cases about the importance of kind of, you know, reading the minutes and when you approve the minutes, it's not just an administrative exercise it's actually really important that you read them and they do reflect what happened during the meeting and um you know that came up very clearly in the James Hardy case which I'm sure everyone will be familiar with it's such an old one but it illustrates this point really well because you know the directors on the James Hardy board claimed um that they never approved a misleading ASX announcement and so obviously well the board minutes were looked at to see whether or not the directors approved it and the minutes of the meeting said that the directors did approve it. And so then the minutes were approved by the directors at the following meeting. So it became really hard for the directors to say they didn't approve the announcement because they had approved the minutes that said that they did. And so who knows whether it happened or not, but you know, the minutes were what was used as evidence of what happened at the board meeting. So you need to be really careful if you're a director in reading those minutes and making sure that you, they appropriately reflect how you saw or what you think happened at that meeting. And you know, following James Hardy, the minutes of meetings have now been circulated um, by companies more quickly and are normally signed off more quickly than they used to be. And you know, it's no longer just a kind of a rubber stamping exercise. You know, directors do often provide comments on the minutes. So I think that's kind of one side of things. Um, the other side is, which we get asked all the time, you know, how much detail should be included in the minutes? Um, and I would say drafting minutes is an art, not a science, and it's actually quite hard. I think some directors think that by including lots and lots of detail, it's going to protect them. I would question that, and I think, you know, often the more detail included can actually be more harmful than helpful. Um, you know, at a bare minimum, the minutes should not be a transcript of the meeting, um, but they do need to kind of accurately reflect what happened. Um, I think, you know, if you were to include a list of um, all of the items that were discussed on a particular issue, then by omission, it's very clear what was overlooked. And I think that's where the minutes can become, you know, used against the director effectively. Um, so I think, you know, kind of a high level overview of what was discussed and of course any dis, um, decisions that were made is really important. And I think from a legal perspective, you know, this less is more is absolutely the way to go but I appreciate you know regulators are pushing for more detail and to the extent that you or 
you are regulated by, um, you know, an APRA, for example, they get access to minutes of various companies. Um, they are pushing for companies to include more detail. So it's a really hard balancing act. Um, and then the other thing, which is just procedural, but just making sure that, you know, who was in attendance, who was on the phone, when did people leave, when did people come in? It's actually really important, you know, if this ever goes to court or, you know, if anything were to come of it, because the minutes will then accurately reflect, you know, who was there at the time. So it's a tricky issue, heaps of companies. We talk about minutes with clients all the time. It's, as I said, an art, not a science, but I'd probably say less is more is where I would get to. Is there anything else in terms of record keeping which you would think should be there for directors to kind of document the activities they're doing? And I guess I'm just reflecting on a, some some directors will keep, you know, a due diligence block, for example, or they'll have a plan that they plan ahead of time and it will include education activities and um, and the like. Is, is there anything that you've seen in that space that, that kind of you think may assist directors, at least in telling their own story about the level of oversight governance, the level of engagement with information that they're exercising? Look, I think the board minutes are really the key, right? Um, I know that directors do keep their own notes. I think sometimes they can actually be more harmful than helpful. So for example, if before a board meeting, you might annotate your board papers and you might go, oh, this is, this is confusing, this makes no sense. Oh gosh, this sounds troubling. Um, then you go to the board meeting, you hear management, it all makes sense. And you're like, oh, okay, it's actually nothing to worry about. I'm very comfortable. No one goes back and updates their annotations. And so that's why we normally wipe, you know, like once the minutes are finalized, you have a final set of board papers, you have the final minutes, and you don't keep kind of annotations of board papers because they actually could become problematic in the future. I know directors do keep kind of records of, you know, CPD sessions they attended, that's fine, they can absolutely do that. I don't see that as harmful. Um, you know, some directors kind of meet with management, you know, outside of board meetings, like they might, you know, the chairman of the audit committee might have regular meetings with the um, head of finance, CFO. You know, I don't know to the extent that those directors document those meetings, but, you know, you can. Again, it could be more harmful in the, in the future. It's hard to know. There's not a perfect answer. Um, but again, I think from my perspective, the board minutes and the board papers are going to be the starting point for we know when things go wrong. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you had any reflections on that as well, on that kind of record keeping aspect, um, and if this had come up in your practice at all. Um, uh, not so much record keeping. I guess education is really important, um, yeah. and you know, I think. Sometimes there's a tendency to um, be looking at risk as risk and opportunity as opportunity and maybe focusing on the here and now as well as whatever five, ten year plan. Um, you might miss the wood for the trees. You know, there, there can be things that are happening outside of, of those silos that are really important to be aware of. So I, I think, you know, a, a board that is operating um, in a really healthy way as a board that's looking broadly and widely at these issues and and is educated on them. And, you know, that's not sort of lengthy sessions. It's really targeted um, and specific education, but it's just making sure that everything that is happening sort of in that broad sphere of influence for an organisation is captured in some way that is relevant um, to the board and then also to management. Um, and you know employees and, and I think um, leaning on SMEs in that regard subject matter experts mm. is really helpful because you can't expect every organisation or every board to have all of the potential skill sets or knowledge that is necessary and particularly in you know very fast paced um, evolving world that we're in um, it's really tricky to keep abreast of everything and and I think sort of knowing your strengths and your weaknesses um, having a broad education program and leveraging from um, the subject matter expertise that you've got internally externally is a really sensible thing to do and obviously that then finds its way into the minutes and the records um, and and I think sort of is, is great evidence of a board and directors really focused on um, the here and now and what's to come and risk and opportunity for the business in a wider sense, not just, you know, from 
not just safety or not just the environmental obligation mm -hmm. that might be probably relevant now. It's interesting in the safety space and those notices that we've been dealing with are now asking the question, did directors, including our non-executive directors, have access to the risk register? Did those directors visit the relevant site? How did those directors learn about the hazards and risks present at that site? And I think one of the kind of lessons here is that that education piece is so important. It is not just about trends and, and injury rates and, and lead indicators. It is really focused on managing the key risks of your business, which, you know, depending on how many critical risks and the nature of your business, um, directors should have, you know, if not access to the risk register, there should be some level of education in this is the risks and hazards in your business. And you really cannot be focused on how we're performing in relation to those hazards and risks without first understanding what they are, what we're doing to control them. Um, and over time, as we've been having those discussions with boards, those education sessions, which are, you know, not from legal, you know, they are from subject matter experts and they are from SMAs within the business as well, really got to understand the nature of the business. There's been a real pull for information in relation to emerging hazards and risks. And, and the clearest example from that for me is the last three years, particularly over the last 12 months, being asked to come and discuss with boards the emerging um, legal changes in the psychosocial health and safety space. You know, there's been a real call and ask for this information because they know that this is another hazard and risk in their business that they have to keep their focus on. Um, and so I think that's a really great uh, model for, you know, all of these uh, risks, these important risks that the businesses need to manage, but particularly important when you've got a regulator knocking on the door saying, well, what did, what did your non-executive directors know about the hazards and the risks of the business? We can say we've had education sessions, you know, management has come and spoken about X, Y and Z, you know, this is how we've kept the focus on the critical risks of our business. So I think that's, that's, those are some important lessons. Um, so I just wanted to, as well, you know, I have definitely seen shifts in the reporting, in the approach to record keeping, in the approach to all governance activities. And I, I think that that's been particularly noticeable over the last three years. There's just a real sophistication in this space and there's a, a need for crisp, clear information. Directors are now comfortable in engaging with information before them about safety and that, you know, they know how to talk about it and they know how to ask questions of management. Um, and I think there's been a lot of reviewing and refreshing both the reporting, is it in the right format? Are we hitting the right issues? You know, does this meet the due diligence test under um, the Work Health Safety Act? Is it putting directors in a good position to meet their personal obligations? But also that flow of information, the flow up to the board, the flow down from the board, um, how committees are communicating with boards, who's sitting on those committees, how often we're having board meetings. Uh, so I've noticed, and, and my colleagues are saying in the safety space, we spent a lot of time on these issues and there's been a real, a real change in the approach. But I, I wanted to just ask each of you as well, you know, what, it, what are the key takeaways for you in this kind of new landscape where directors are both wanting to be uh, in that effective superintendent, you know, of their organisation, but also are exposed to, to, to individual legal risk, reputational risk, and need to manage that as well. And that's an important issue. Do you want me to, I can jump in. I think directors are, going, are becoming more hands-on. Their role is getting bigger and bigger. I mean, even the number of issues that the board is now expected to look at is bigger than it was 10 years ago, you know, including safety, environment, cyber, AI, you know, the list goes on. Um, Directors, for the most part, are really engaged. They want to help. They want to kind of share their um, share kind of their wisdom as such, um, and help guide the company. I find you know a lot of they're not. I think you know 30 years ago, the idea of a director was kind of like, oh, they come in once or twice a month. You know, go listen to the listen to management, talk at them, 
have a cup of tea and go home. And, you know, that's not the case anymore. They are absolutely really hands-on and they need to be. They they have obligations and, you know, they, they have reputations on the line as much as anything. So I think kind of recognising that if you're on management, that's why the directors are so engaged from a reputational perspective and obviously a liability perspective, they must be. Um, but on the flip side, I think, you know, if you're on management, um, and to the extent that it's appropriate, you know, having the dialogue with the directors, you know, and, and being really transparent, saying, you know, is the information coming up to you at the right level? Do you want more detail? Are there certain topics that you're interested in that we should be presenting on? From, you know, um, Mel, you've made the point that, you know, this stuff is moving very quickly and they can't be subject matters on everything. So asking what subject matter experts should we be getting into the board this year? Asking us, we obviously, you know, know kind of what we get asked. So I often have clients saying, you know, what are the top 10 director education sessions you're holding this year? And, you know, we can give some guidance. But I think it's that transparent dialogue between management and directors is where you're going to get to the right product at the end and trying to do it just assuming you know what directors want. You're not going to get there. You're going to have to have that dialogue, I think. Yeah, to um, maybe pick up on a theme around the quality of the information, I think having a really good relationship between board and management and the management and, you know, ops and assets is critical because I feel like there's a bit of tension there sometimes with management or, or assets wanting present, to present the best possible picture, you know, um, and I'm not sure that rose tinted glasses are actually ever good um, for anyone involved. I, th I think being able to have that relationship where you can fully and frankly bring information to a board and present a realistic picture um, of risk and opportunity is important. And to sort of resist the urge to be minimising risk where that risk is latent, um, sort of trying to stare into the issues um, and bring the board along the journey to sort of reducing that risk and taking action. So I think that's the first thing is, is just that relationship and what actually gets fed up and, and the trust between the different actors within an organisation to be able to do so in, in a way that will be productive. Um, the second is following up on issues and action. Um, I, I see all too often that there will be audits or investigations, a report is produced, there's a series of issues, they're triaged, and then it might fall off the agenda. And that is just such a big risk um, that you've had these issues looked into, you've developed um, an idea of what needs to be addressed and then there's no follow through. And I do think that that is, um, you know, it's not just the role for the board, but the board should be alive to that, particularly um, those sort of issues of importance that have made their way onto the agenda to make sure that they're followed through to completion and, and you don't actually compound risk by failing to take action on the things that have been identified. Um, mm. The second piece, um, and we're talking about it quite a lot in the climate space at the moment, um, you know, yes, there's a lot of risk, but what's the opportunity for businesses? Um, certainly um, decarbonisation presents huge opportunities for business. And I, I think um, environmental performance and leading environmental performance also presents that opportunity. It might be, um, you know, from a resources perspective, being able to have a cleaner, greener commodity. Um, what's the upside of doing things better than have been done before? And so um, I guess that's something else for the, the board to be thinking about in terms of information and reporting up. Are we just looking at things through a risk lens when we think about regulatory regimes? Um, is there something, you know, from an opportunity perspective that we should be asking management to tell us about so that we can feed that in to the strategic planning that obviously needs to take place at board level. That's a really interesting comment, that uh, comment about the relationship between management and boards, because I know it certainly um, in some boardrooms there is a sense of I'm fairly certain, you know, that there is a disconnect, you know, that you're in the kind of heights of, of somewhere and there's a real deference and you think, are they getting the picture here? Uh, how can they know what's going on when there's so much um, deference towards the directors? I, I don't know what the answer is there, but I, uh, Lauren Mill, do you have a sense of what actually would establish um, trust, a good relationship, you know, I guess what might be that kind of psychological safety, you know, 
how to elevate bad news because um, I, I think that's what if I was on a board I'd want to know um, but I do wonder what it is that actually encourages good relationships between management and and their boards and one thing that we see a lot is kind of more some of those informal meetings like stuff happening outside the board meetings so again I said before like the chair will normally have kind of a one-to-one -one with the CEO on a pretty regular basis and that communication will really build the relationship between the chair and the CEO. But we see that throughout. So, you know, the chair of the audit committee will be meeting with the CFO, possibly, you know, tax, audit, whatever. Um, and then it's even just those informal meetings or, or board dinners and um, lunches. You know, I have one um, company where the, they have a cafeteria and the directors don't have lunch in the boardroom. They go down to the cafeteria with all the staff. So they're there and they don't sit together. They all sit on separate tables to really encourage employees just to be able to have a chat to you know get a sense of what's going on in the organisation. And another director saying he sometimes rides the lifts up and down just to have a chat with people, you know, as you go. And, and that, they're kind of little examples, but I think Directors want to get in the business, they want to talk to people. I think when you're having those board dinners, thinking really carefully about who from management we're inviting, it shouldn't just be the kind of top level that you'll stand people. Maybe it's kind of the layer below and a couple of extra people here and there. Um, but I think the more that the directors and management can interact with each other, that helps build trust. And then on the flip side, it's the transparency. And Mel, you hit the nail on the head before when you said, you know, raising those issues, like flagging the bad news stories. And, and making sure the directors are across them and being really clear about it. And that helps build that trust as well because the directors don't think you're hiding things. In fact, it's the opposite. You are flagging the bad news really clearly, really transparently, and hopefully with a kind of game plan going forward. But I think it's those um, elements that really help build that relationship. Mel, I don't know if you've got other examples. Uh, I think, I, and making sure that the board understand the business and are visible in the business and I know it can be really tricky with large multinational organisations with diverse assets um, sort of spatially all over the place you know you can't have the board physically there all the time you can't understand every asset and every issue um, but it I think that that sort of builds a great culture, right? That you've got everyone within the organisation having that appreciation of what the enterprise looks like and sort of with tactile moments um, it, at the, you know, right in the granular, right in the weeds. Um, so that they do have that opportunity to see things um, from, you know, that, that first port of call, um, you know, whether it's a mine or a, um, an office environment, but it's not, you know, the director's role isn't um, solely in the boardroom. Um, they do have that role to play um, in a more nuanced way across the organisation. I think on those site visits, for example, I've had directors give us feedback that they don't like the red carpet to be rolled out when they get there, because then they're on this little tool where they're only allowed to see certain things and you know, then they're like, well, what weren't we allowed to see? And so I think it's that a bit of informality in a way with the directors, you know, people are people. And I think um, you know, being transparent, what do you want to see while you're here? Let's go around. There's a certain people you want to talk to, but those site visits can be very stage managed. And I think directors really appreciate it when they're not overly stage managed. Yeah, there has traditionally the site visits would be directors, execs would be bust in, they, you know, be shown a site, pointed at a few things and bust straight out back for lunch and back for the rest of the board meeting. That has changed. Um, there is, there, there really is, and did the directors undertake site visits? That, that was a very specific question in this notice that we've answered. Well, undertaking a site visit by itself is by the by, you know, you can go, you can tour an asset and it's, it's probably, from a safety perspective, fundamentally meaningless unless you know what you're looking at. So we would say if you were to undertake a site visit, the most effective way to do that is would you have a deep dive into, for example, mobile plant before you're going and looking at a, a warehouse? Would you have a deep dive into the risks and hazards of mobile plant, how we manage them? Will we then put you out there to go for a wonder on your own? And actually empowering um, people with questions, either they are 
you know, if they've got an executive role, they'll have to do their own, it's not an audit, but it looks like an audit, you know, that they'll actually have to go through and say, you know, I know uh, the, the critical controls that need to be in place and I can and have discussions about that, or even more informally, just speaking to workers and saying, what, you know, what are you aware of the things that could hurt you today? What are they? What are we doing to manage them? And actually really just having very informal discussions about risk awareness and what's on um, people's minds. Because I think, you know, particularly where you hit the heights of the boardroom, you can really lose connection with the shop floor, with the risks and hazards of the work, with how that might impact workers and their families. That's particularly so if you're not from industry, you know, if you haven't come up from shop floor, I know some directors have, some haven't. Um, and I think in the safety space, not being bust out, not having the kind of red carpet rolled out is really, really important to understand the nature of the work and understand what it would be like to do that work and, and to have discussions about risk and hazard awareness and, you know, and to really engage in that, that consultation, which is a key piece of WHS regulations that the workers are consulted with, listening to thoughts, ideas and suggestions, including from, um, from workers who are actually doing the work to those who are really in that governance role. So I think there's lots of lessons to learn in the safety space, both in relation to um, that, how to engage with actually the work that is being done, how to understand it, you know, how to effectively use things like sidewalks so they don't just look like directors going on a, a tour. But also some of that elevating bad news, you know, that has been work that has been done for a long time in the safety space. You don't know what you don't know and it can cause considerable unease when you're sitting on a board and everything looks like it's going well, nothing's being reported. In the safety space that would cause you the concern that you're probably not getting the right information and that bad news isn't being elevated with the good. Um, so I, th I think there are lots of lessons for the, the kind of other key risk areas as well in relation to if you're a director kind of integrating some of those cultural heritage, environmental work with the principles that have been applied to the safety space. Um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, I think the officer due diligence obligation, it hasn't seen swathes of directors prosecuted, you know, particularly at our clients and, and that level for, for breaches of WHS legislation, but it has been called out as a real success story here. Um, about a decade into the introduction of our WHS laws, which included this positive obligation, uh, a review was um, undertaken and called for by all of our um, state IR ministers and the results of that were, well, these laws are, are working essentially as intended, except in relation to big carve psychological health and safety, there's more work to be done. The review called out as a, just a, a, a success story here, you know, this officer due diligence obligation. And it's not because people are being prosecuted at great levels. It's not that, you know, and we've never kind of given that story. This is not a take you to brush to work story. This is a, a good model for applying safety governance. There is, um, and I think Lauren, you've spoken about that kind of hands-on um, work that directors do now. They want to help, they want to get involved. And, you know, they're smart people who, who want to understand the organisation. I think that that's definitely been a lesson from from the safety world, you know, that there is real impact in directors understanding and, and getting involved. So unless there are, um, just checking if there are, uh, there is a question, which I'll just quickly drop in. We use a good template for board reports, but this is used as a cover sheet with the main information, e.g. draft policy attached in the pack. Um, one instance we provided the template only the board requested the underlying document which is 50 pages long. I think Lauren you might have a view on that but that's probably directors calling for information in action. Look, I think if the directors have asked for the underlying information I don't see any concern in providing it to them and you know it just shows again what we've been discussing that they do want to get into that level of detail you know, if that happens like quite a few times, I think you need to kind of reflect and say, you know, are our board paper templates 
at the right level. Maybe we need to be including more, or maybe this is just a specific issue that the directors are particularly interested in. You know, for example, this director might have a background in whatever this topic was and wanted to understand the underlying issues. And we often see that where directors do have specific expertise. Um, and, you know, I think you've done the right thing. And, you know, obviously you felt that the paper adequately covered the issue and there wasn't a need to give them the extra 50 pages, but if they'd like it, I think that's fine. That's no problem. Thank you. I'm, I'm conscious of time and I'm um, conscious that we have gone over today. So I, I will um, thank Lauren and Mel. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think this is a really, really rich discussion. And I think there's a lot to, you know, take from the safety space, but also to learn from your practices as well. I like the idea of kind of integrating all of these uh, governance frameworks around these key risks. Um, to make, you know, to put directors in, in the best position to, to exercise that superintendent role and to make sure that they've got the right information before them. Um, thank you to everyone on the call today. We will be putting a recording of this webinar up on our website in the coming days and we will send through a link to all attendees. Hopefully the IT issues haven't been too challenging. Um, to Mel and Lauren, thank you both very much for joining me today to share your insights. Uh, and finally, uh, one last point to share with the audience. We just wanted to include a shameless plug here for our uh, Employment, IR and Safety's next webinar. Many of you would have seen the new closing loopholes bill introduced by Tony Burke yesterday. I think we've been working very hard to get across um, all of those changes. We've, we have a summary of the key changes being announced up on our HSF website next Thursday, and we'll be hosting a live webinar with four of our Australian partners discussing key changes in the bill and the impact of those changes with our clients. So keep an eye out um, in your inboxes for that event invitation. Big changes are pushed. Um, but thank you so much. We appreciate you joining us today um, and enjoy your afternoon.